Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And before I turn the microphone over to Lex Pelger today, I first want to let you know about another little project that I've begun. As you may know, iTunes limits the number of entries in our RSS feed to 300. But as of today, there are now close to 600 podcasts from here in the salon. Now, there are several ways to get them all, uh, the best of which is to simply go to psychedelicsalon.com, click the podcast link, and, well, that'll take you to a page that lists every one of the salon's podcasts going all the way back to March of 2005. However, unless you are really into binge listening to podcasts, that's, uh, well, probably too many podcasts for you to sort through. So, I've decided to do what a lot of our fellow saloners have been asking for all these many years. And that is for me to go back through all of these programs and point out the ones that I think are still worth listening to. Actually, just sorting through the 250 plus Terrence McKenna recordings is going to take you a lot of time. So, over the next couple of years, I'm going to be sorting through them all myself and posting my favorites along with my personal comments about how and why I selected a particular program. And I'm doing all this on the blockchain-based social media platform called Steemit, and that's spelled S-T-E-E-M-I-T, as in short for esteem. Esteemit. <laughs> well, one of the things that I like about this platform is that nobody needs to register, sign up, or pay any money to read the posts that I or anyone else makes there. On top of that, since it is a blockchain site, there is no central server farm that is owned by a big corporation. Every post is uncensored and placed directly in the blockchain, where it will live for as long as the Steemit community exists. Basically, Steemit is a place where anyone who wants to can have their own blog, for free. And people who want to can become involved in several ways. The best way is to post things on your personal blog and or comment on other people's posts. Each time you do one of those things, well, you earn Steam, which is a cryptocurrency. So if you're interested in checking this out, just go to steamit.com slash at Lorenzo Haggerty, all one word, lowercase. And uh, hey, please let me know if you're already using Steamit so that I can follow you back. Now, in a few days, I'll be releasing a new Salon One podcast that's titled A House Divided Against Itself. But for right now, I'm going to turn the mic over to Lex Pelger, who will introduce today's storytelling session that was recorded in Chicago, Illinois. I'm really looking forward to listening to this with you today, as I still think of Chicago as my hometown. Granted, I grew up on the outskirts of Chicago in the small town of Elgin, but whenever I've been asked where I grew up, I always say Chicago, that toddling town Chicago. This is a non-nonsense production. If you like what you hear and want to help us make the Salon 2.0 bigger and better, sign up to support this work monthly on patreon.com. As a two-person production, any help goes a long way. Join us at patreon.com slash nonsense. 
I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. It's starting to feel like fall in this part of the world, and it makes me nostalgic for windy, lovely Chicago and our stop there on the Blue Dot Storytelling Tour. It's time to get back to sharing some of our story sessions from the road, and we'll be sprinkling them in over the next few months. I'm excited to share these stories from Chicago because it was one of the biggest, best attended, and most fraternal stops on the entire trip. The Chicago Psychedelic Club has been regularly meeting for quite some time, and it shows in the vibe of their gatherings. I think you'll find this set of stories quite intriguing and inspiring. And I especially like how the show ends with a story about holotropic breathwork. Because we must never forget, you don't need drugs to get high. I also want to give a special shout out to Matt Brown, who runs the Chicago Psychedelic Club, and to his friend Dr. Fernando S.B. Forsen, who is the chief editor of the Journal of Humanistic Psychiatry, a publication who is looking for submissions if you have any. Also, many thanks to Dr. Paige Lassen, who went out and bought a portable PA system for us and for the evening, and then donated it to the tour, as well as for letting us stay at her place. And to Dr. David Ostrow, who is the delightful cleanup hitter in this story night, and who is a longtime advocate for the rational use of drugs. Two final things to say about the show. One is that most of these storytelling nights are being broadcast on Facebook Live and they can still be seen on the Symposia Facebook page. Hence the number of people you'll hear saying hello to their parents and their friends who might be watching online. And the other thing to note is that for all these storytelling nights, we play the stories in the order in which they occur. There's something perfect about the flow of the evening, and I don't want to try and mess with that by sliding things around. Every night feels like a symphony, and this series of events across the continent remains the best thing I've ever done. For anyone around Chicago interested in psychedelics, we have an announcement from our friends there, Megan Kennedy and Jeff Bathji. They have started a monthly group called Psychedelic Safety, Support, and Integration. It's an open meeting for people who want to come, connect, and process. They have a Facebook group you can join for more info. They offer open group integration, harm reduction, and education. I salute them for this excellent community-minded initiative. Before we begin this episode, I want to thank Daniel Potter and Abigail Bianchi for stepping up in a big way to support the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 on Patreon. Their help is much appreciated, and I have copies of my cannabinoid graphic novels headed their way. Daniel's is going all the way to him in Australia. For now, sit back, relax, and imagine yourself in the back of a Chicago saloon, surrounded by beautiful, friendly people listening with intense enthusiasm to each other's stories of the other side. Hi, everyone. I'm Carly. And hi, everyone, to Facebook and Facebook land. If you're watching, Mom, I'm sorry. (laughs) Actually, I'm not sorry. I'm glad if you're watching. But, um, yeah, I want to talk about the first, and really the only time I ever smoked DMT. Um, So, it was a little over six years ago, and I had just experienced my first peyote ceremony. It was a really beautiful ceremony, and in the morning, just like the tears were flowing, and just so grateful, and just like, oh my gosh, I like... 
I never knew what gratitude was before, and for the earth and the water, and I was just in this really open space, and was kind of like, wow, questioning like the way I was living my whole life. And we were at a, in a house out in Queens, New York, and um, it was the morning, and it was a nice sunny day, and we were all hanging out in the backyard, and just like sitting in the grass, people were doing headstands, and there was a guy walking around with a little pipe and just kind of like going up to people and and then the, the person would sit there and lay down and I asked my friend who invited me to the ceremony, I'm like, oh, what are they doing? And she's like, DMT. And I was like, oh. And I had no idea what it was or that it was even a psychedelic and I didn't ask too many questions, but I'm like, oh, are you going to do it? And she's like, oh yeah, this is a great time to do it. We're nice and open, our hearts are open. You should try it. And I'm like, okay. So the guy comes up to me, and I like, I really, I never drank ayahuasca. I had no idea what DMT felt like or was. And he comes up with the pipe, and he's like, okay, you know, you're gonna inhale, and then you're gonna hold it in as long as you can, and exhale, and you're gonna inhale again. And I'm like, okay. So I did it the first time, and I felt, I don't know what I felt, but this, a wave of something. And then he goes to give me the second hit, and I just go. And I remember he looks into my eyes and he goes. <laughs> so I did it. And, um, and I was just like, I heard kind of this sound. It's like a shoop. And I was in like another dimension. And I like looked over at like a tree. And the only way I can describe it is like a 10 dimensional tree. And I was like, oh my gosh. And looking around and everything is alive and 10 dimensional. And I have this realization that's like, oh my gosh. And it was like a certain realization. And I'm like, I just got sucked up into like the next dimension and I, there's no way back. So I'm like in this next dimension. I look over at this guy next to me and he's got like 12 eyes and like eight arms. And he's like, hey, how you feeling? And I like look down and I don't have a body anymore. And I'm just like a floating spirit, and I look over, and he's just like, and I'm like, oh, so we're we're here, huh? And he's like, yeah, we're here. And I was like, okay, I'm in this, the next dimension, and at least I'm with some cool people. I look around, and we're like, you know, just people with like 12 eyes are hanging out in this backyard. And I was like, okay. So then I start coming, like talking to myself, like, okay, you're here. It's all right. Like you'll get used to it. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to take care of my dog now. Because I'm like thinking like my family and everybody else is like still in the old dimension. And, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to see my family again. And then I'm going to start, you know, freaking out. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, no, it's cool. And I like look over and there's the guy with like 12 eyes. And I'm like, oh. and I was like, okay, you could do this. You're just, you're here. And it was like, felt like it was like, okay, you're here for eternity too. It's not just like a next dimension where you're going to like die from and it's going to, but it's like, no, you're here forever. And um, it's like, okay. So it's been a while, like, just getting used to it. And then I, like, felt, you know, like the ground again. I was like, oh, wait. I, am I going to come down from this? And then I would come back up a little bit. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm here. And then it came, came down a little bit. And I'm like, okay. And I felt the ground. I'm like, oh, I'm coming back to the earth. It's like, I'm coming back. And I just got really excited, and I had, like, never been so grateful just to, like, 
be alive in this reality and this normal and to have a body and um and then i remember you know and everybody in the backyard pretty much just had their little turn and then you know everybody had their experience and then we were just like laughing for like an hour <laughs> and it felt it was really good and um yeah and that's pretty much it and then i took a little trip to San Diego and I just like chilled out on the beach for a week and I don't know. And now I'm here. So. <laughs> I'm going to talk about something publicly that has previously never existed in a public <laughs> discussion. Um, and I wouldn't be taking this leap if it wasn't for the gravity of what I feel I've been carrying around for some years, um, and I'm only now starting to move beyond conversations with immediate connections and now branching out to you all in this room to tell a very short story of a very large happening. Essentially, some years ago, I was in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. I took a tab of lysergic acid, diethylamine, aka LSD, acid, call it what you will, and I sat down on a tree stump. This was about 1 p.m. that day. And to give you a little context as to how I got to this tree stump, I had more or less lit my old life on fire. I had quit a job after losing a relationship and losing a good friend to a drunk driver. It had pushed me to a place where I was basically ready for anything. Um, and it seemed like in my mind at the time that Perhaps LSD was so very foreign that maybe some answer lied there. I had met people influenced by it. And so I went and I sat. And after about an hour of sitting, very subtle awarenesses started to creep in. It started first just with the simple noticing of the crevices in my hand, seeing within those crevices, the innumerable stories, innumerable repetitions of all of the various encounters I had had throughout my life. And somehow or another, that transitioned into a simple acceptance of my physical body, a caring towards my physical body that I hadn't previously had. Part of what motivated me to get all the way far out west from Chicago out there was a searching for something more, something to fill a hole, and I wasn't sure what. But at that moment, by staring at my own hand, sitting and admiring a tree across the way, I transitioned from chasing a carrot that was out in front of me to simply existing within that carrot. And that carrot was life, was being there for my life. And it it's the simplest lesson perhaps I've ever learned and maybe the most immediately easy to forget lesson that I forget over and over. Um, but that one moment is a place, a sort of mental mm, constellation that I can journey to over and over, a place I can refine when I need to. And for this, I feel compelled to speak positively of a substance that has been dragged through the mud for who knows how many different reasons and causes. 
And so I come simply as an advocate, as someone who is positively affected by an experience with LSD, who believes that there is some grounds for some research into understanding the ways in which these sorts of direct experiences with our senses can inform a certain sense of gratitude and use to potentially guide our day-to-day -day exchanges. I could talk ad infinium about the other ways in which this experience has colored in so much of myself. But for me, being here today is about simply voicing support for something that is, yes, increasingly supported, but something that has personally, quite honestly, saved my life. Uh, and, uh, if, I, if not for that experience, if not for reconnecting with the experience of being alive, period, I, I wonder where I might have been. And for this reason, I feel a certain loyalty um, to LSD for what it has brought me and what it could potentially bring to others who are potentially at a place where an intervention can only come from within as it did with me. So thank you for listening and thank you for being here this evening. I was incredibly nervous before I started speaking. I'm probably about to cry because I'm like afraid of a million things at once, but that's my story and I thank you all so much. So thank you. Over the last 30 years, I've delved into different ways to access uh, a version of peeling back layers so that I can find a, a truth, I guess you will say. Uh, and, and really just trying to get to the root of things so that I can flourish. Uh, there are so many things that can cloud what we experience, and, and I like clearing and cleansing and uh, seeing clearly. So uh, I guess starting my senior year in high school, I began with LSD and mushrooms. And at the time, it was just this adventure and this joy uh, of discovering newness and seeing things from a new perspective. And then over time, uh, when I realized that uh, there was a lot going on underneath. I wanted to find a certain sense of authenticity that I, I couldn't convince myself of. Uh, so over the years, uh, it went from being recre recreational to being more of this journey of uh, exploration into a deeper version of self uh, and maybe a new kind of truth that uh, I would believe in more fully if that makes sense. And uh, it, was, it was actually um, these experiences with finding ways to open doors that ultimately took me to a place where I did something called a vipassana. And a vipassana is where you spend 10 days sitting in meditation for 10 hours. And uh, it was through something called pranayama. If you're unfamiliar with this term, it's, uh, it's breath work. Prana means uh, your life force. It's like your shakti or your chi. 
And so it's the movement of breath. And so in this 10 hours of sitting, your work is to strip away the layers by emptying your mind and essentially you're scanning your body uh, from toe to head and down again. And that's all you do for 10 hours a day. Uh, and you're fasting. And there's absolutely no interaction with other humans. You're in a hall. Men are on one side, women are on another side. Uh, but even with sleeping, eating, there's no eye contact. There's no uh, validation of the cues that we move through life with uh, that are actually um, giving us information about how we're maneuvering through space and that we're really okay. So when you can't have any eye contact and you can't uh, receive information about whether you suck or you're awesome, uh, it, it actually can tear you down. Um, so you, you not only cannot make eye contact, but you have to avert eyes and you, you can't even use body languaging that acknowledges that you exist in space with others. And it was beyond humbling. It was, um, it, it strips you down. And so I went through a series of, of emotions and experiences that took me deeper than any kind of psychedelic study I've ever done. And because I, you know, we're all these incredible machines. We are these self-healing mechanisms and, and all the chemistry is within us and all the knowledge is within us. And so, how do you get there? How do you get to the truth? And so sitting in this meditation uh, took me through despair and joy and bliss and eroticism and fury. And I, I grew up in a setting where it's not okay to be angry and it's not, ex it's not okay to express anger. It's not feminine to be confrontational. You discuss everything. And, uh, and it's not okay to have bad, ugly, dark feelings. And I went into the depths of my darkness and went to a place I didn't even know existed and horrified me and terrified me. And I felt this rage and fury that overcame me and I thought I would never go back. And, and I think it was all the years of the psychedelic studies that I had done recreationally and maybe even with a shaman and through different various, various studies, um, there was that comfort, that familiarity, like, okay, this is temporary. This is just another dimension, and it's time and space spectrum, and it will all come back. And if you don't, it's okay, because it's all cool, and it's going to be fine, and you're just floating through the universe anyway. <laughs> so ultimately, at the end of this 10 days sitting, uh, it gave me the opportunity to recognize that we are these multi-dimensional beings, and uh, and I guess I initially walked out feeling rather unsteady, but then later realized uh, I was equipped with uh, all the knowledge, the vastness of who we all are is, is here, and it's accessible at any time. And it just happened to be that this 10 days of meditation took me where I ultimately needed to be uh, to feel safe and uh, level. And, and so... Maybe maybe it's uh, running, or maybe it's a dance class, or maybe it's uh, going through birthing a baby. Uh, whatever it is that gets you there. Um, ultimately, it was the 10-day meditation that, that got me 
so far to the deepest place um, in my mind and in all the layers of who I am so far. Uh, so that's that's my story. It's just it wasn't necessarily a drug, except for the chemistry that I awakened within myself. <laughs> that's my story. talk about uh, an ayahuasca experience that I had uh, about a little over two years ago now. Um, I was very fortunate that after I finished my, um, my medical training, my fellowship, I was able to take a month vacation down to South America. As part of it, I went on a retreat. Um, uh, the, the retreat itself, there, there was two bookended San Pedro ceremonies with four ayahuasca ceremonies uh, in the middle. Um, first ayahuasca ceremony, I came in, I had a lot of expectations. Um, I thought I knew what was probably going to happen because I'd done a lot of reading, um, and I, and uh, I, I I was prepared. I took a, the first shot, didn't taste nearly all that bad, um, and I sat there and I waited, nothing. Um, took the second shot, sat there and waited, and nothing. So um, my my very first time taking ayahuasca, basically nothing happened. At the end, I, I got up. I, I felt a little bit woozy. Um, almost like I'd had a couple of beers, and then I went to sleep. No, it was fine. A couple nights later, second experience. Um, and I was told that uh, this time uh, by the shaman, he said, just take two drinks up front, but then take no more than two. Do not, do not take more. I said, okay. So I took two, and I sat there, and nothing was really happening. Nothing was happening. And then I felt like I had like a hand on my face. Um, and it was just giving a gentle pressure, just saying, like, you needed to turn your head. So I started thinking, all right, that's odd. You don't normally feel like you have a hand on your face when there's no one else there. Um, so I started turning my head, and then I just I started just stretching a lot. Um, and I got into some really deep stretches in the, the back of my neck and my back, and I found, felt all this tension start to relax. Um, and at some point during this, uh, they, they were passing around you know, another one of the little shot glasses, and I was asked to take another half a shot. I said, no, thank you. I was told not to do that. Um, so I was stretching a little bit more, shaman singing his Icaros. Um, and then he stopped again, and he, he shouted something, and I was told that he was asking if I wanted another drink. And at this point, I thought, this is too weird. Sure, fine, whatever. I, so, I, so I took another half shot. Um, and I was doing my stretching thing and then feeling kind of uh, just a little bit odd. Um, and then towards the end of each ceremony, there's a blessing where everybody comes up and uh, the shaman's kind of singing this specific song. And he sings the same song for everybody. Um, my turn came around. I, I went up there. And when I was up there, I felt him touch the top of my head. It felt very similar to when uh, there was a hand on my face. And I felt like, well, I should just go with this. So I was just trying to like move and see where he was going to put my body. Um, and then he started singing, but he was singing a different song uh, than he sang for, for the others. And, and I, all that I really remember, there was a bunch of flashes of a number of different things. And... Um, one image that stuck with me, at first I thought it was just a, a big pile of vertebrae. Uh, I thought it was human vertebrae. But then there was like something towards the top of it. It didn't really make sense. And I realized uh, that the, the skeleton kind of had a head and had like teeth and fangs. And I realized that it was um, a stack of snakes. And I didn't know what to make of this um, until probably about a week and a half ago at uh, the Psychedelic Science Conference when um, Stan Groff was talking about the three different evils of humanity. Um, and uh, so then all of a sudden while he was having, uh, while, you know, he was talking, I kind of had this realization that really 
the snake is a representation of anger. And this was trying to tell me that, that, that I just have a lot of pent-up anger built up inside of me. Um, and then, you know, he finished a song. I went back. I was having a really hard time. I, I could hardly even crawl. Uh, and then I started feeling really, really sick. Um, and then I got a, a number of other flashes of things that I don't remember. The only thing that I remember was there was some kind of a, a wavy picture that had like a, it looked like a head that was being scanned up and down. And then all I could see was fire. It was blue fire with my eyes closed or eyes open, just fire. And I got really hot. And it was only about maybe 30 degrees outside. So I uh, so we were bundled up in blankets and um, sweatshirts, et cetera. I had to pull all that off, and I was just dripping sweat, dripping sweat, dripping sweat, and just, just moaning because I was on fire. It felt like I was on fire. Eventually, that calmed down, um, and I was just tired, and I laid there, and the ceremony ended. Uh, went back to my room, um, had an excessive amount of diarrhea. Um, that, that eventually did pass, uh, and, and I thought the whole thing was over. But then um, I was laying in my bed. At this point, it was probably about 3 in the mo morning, and I felt another rumbling in my stomach, and I thought, oh, gosh, I might have to run back to the bathroom again. But no, that's not what happened. I had, like, the entire experience started to come back again. And um, at first I was like, oh, this is interesting. But then I started to get a little bit warm, uh, and I started to get really scared. Um, and I tried to, to knock on the wall to get the um, attention of my neighbor, but I realized the, the wall was kind of made of mud, and my head just kind of thumped on it, so you couldn't really hear anything. Um, and, and I was just terrified that I was, I, I was going to be on fire and I was going to die. Um, so I, I, everything that I, I, I took every, it took all the energy that I had to, to get up out of bed, and I was crawling to, to get outside. Um, and... and I started just dripping sweat right before I hit the door. And so I was outside, and, I, and again, it's 3 in the morning. Everyone's asleep. I didn't know what to do. I, I, couldn't, I was trying to speak, but then I couldn't speak. So then I just started, like, moaning and kind of, like, yelling some sort of guttural sound um, and got the attention of um, some people to, to kind of come over. They helped me calm down. And then um, the, the retreat leaders sat with me in the room, and I kind of started processing um, a lot of my, well, just thoughts that have been in my mind for a long time. So growing up, um, I was a very inquisitive person. I was always very interested in um, knowing why people do what they do. Um, and I would ask my teachers lots of questions, which really they didn't like. Um, because whenever I'd ask them why, they would somehow think that that was sort of um, you know, disrespectful or something like that. So I talked about this for a while. I processed it. Um, then the heartburn started. Um, so I have heartburn. Um, I have, uh, it's called a hiatal hernia, so like my esophageal sphincter does not close. It stays open all the time. And I had the absolute worst heartburn. I thought I was dying. Um, and I laid there for probably about three hours just wanting to die. Um, and it made me realize that's probably how I will die. Uh, I think I'll probably get cancer from my heartburn. Um, I'm not kidding. Um, and, and that's... I, I, that was more or less the end of that experience. This is now into about 7 o'clock the next morning. I went back and I uh, went to sleep. Everyone thought that I wasn't going to continue on with the two other ceremonies I did. Um, I think ayahuasca was very kind to me during those other ceremonies. I, nothing really all that profound happened. Um, I did have some communication with another being slightly, but it was just kind of a joking thing. Of um, well, Actually, it sounded like, um, like a college sorority girl voice, uh, and, and it was just like saying the stupidest stuff. 
that didn't make any sense, and I was just kind of like laughing at it. Uh, and then the very last ceremony, um, all that I remember was, uh, you know, somebody else from the group said, you need to open your heart. And I started to try to open my heart, and then I saw uh, the image of my wife's face smiling down at me. Um, and that's the end of my ayahuasca story. Hello, everybody. Hello, Facebook. Um, I just wanted to tell the story of how I personally had experienced uh, unity, collection with the people, with people, humanity. I was at an ayahuasca ceremony. This was like a year or two ago. And usually when you drink ayahuasca, it takes some time to kick in, half hour or something like that. And so I'm sitting there, and I noticed that like a lot of people were experiencing ayahuasca, but I wasn't really feeling anything. After a little while, I noticed there was this light. There was an altar in the middle of the room from the, the person who was leading it. There was this light, this light formed right above the altar, and that was when it started to kind of come on. And slowly, it just opened up, and it was really big glowing structure and it was beautiful it was great after some time you know i'm kind of thinking like oh this is great like psychedelic imagery and all this kind of stuff yeah so we take a break he says people can get up move around and then we'll drink some more so i go outside and some people were smoking cigarettes and uh this one guy's sitting there and he's smoking he's like yeah it's a pretty good night did anybody else see that vortex open up over the altar? And I was like, what? Yes, I saw that. What? And I'd realized that, and I started like asking people about it, that when people get together in psychedelic states, they create this container. And in that container, we all start sharing all of our emotions and our thoughts and our experiences. And, you know, I've the more I've kind of meditated on that and tried to apply that lesson in my life, I've realized that a lot of things are like that. So uh, in this room right now, for example, we're all, we're all connected. In a way, we're all kind of coming out of that psychedelic closet. I love that phrase. It's great. So that's my story. Thank you. When Lex asked me to have the cleanup position on this uh, round of Tories, I wasn't sure whether it was because I was supposed to comment on other people or tell a defining moment, but it's a defining moment in my life. So I've been sitting there thinking about the last 55 years of my life when I first started smoking pot as a, a freshman at the University of Chicago. And, and what were the defining moments? And I guess they've always been an interplay between personal experience and the desire to capitalize on that, both for myself but for science. And so um, that's kind of how my whole career has gone. Um, before I came to Chicago, I, I didn't use any drugs. In fact, it was like a capital expense to be, uh, expense to be caught smoking in my high school. Cigarettes, that was. Um, but I remember my first year in the dorms, 
my roommate and I both smoked uh, cigar pipes, you know, cigarette pipes, and all of a sudden, all the other guys on that floor of the dorm started coming to us asking how to break in corn cob pipes. And, you know, we're, we're smoking these really nice pipes and tobacco from the store downtown that's so famous. And so, you know, I started asking around and, you know, very, very, very paranoid. People finally said, oh, well, we're smoking um, weed in here and um, actually got taken someplace where I could buy my first nickel bag and, uh, you know, somebody had a big bale hidden in their closet and they would go in there and chop off like a baggy full and it was $5 and... Um, you know, between the seeds and the twigs, you could actually get high. Uh, and then the next year, my roommates discovered that there were all these hemp farms still growing hemp in Indiana, you know, left over from World War II and stuff. We all know hemp has very little um, THC in it, but they would organize excursions and bring back, you know, duffel bags full of it. And then we would spend the night in the laundromat drying this stuff, and you could pretty much throw out all the plant and just take the, uh, the particles, the resin that collected at the bottom of the bag, and, and, and it was kind of like Keith um, was. So, um, like Lex said earlier, usually a person's favorite drug is the first one they use, and uh, I'll never forget the first time I really got high with the right people in the right circumstances, and we had... Uh, uh, mama, we had the uh, Mama cast, and uh, Mama's the Papas were playing on the LP. And next thing I know, Mama cast is just singing to me. We're having this two-way conversation, and it, you know, looking back on it, it, it was a very hallucinatory. And um, I don't think I've had an experience with marijuana since then. But over the years, um, especially in undergraduate, our, our house was kind of like a place where people came through, you know, like Lex on their way across the country with all different drugs and things. So DMT was big and uh, stuff like that. Uh, but it all came to a crashing halt when uh, uh, the feds, uh, we found out that one of our best friends was an FBI agent. <laughs> attending the university, and, this whole, and, and I found out by reading in the New York Times that uh, a picture of him testifying to the House on american Affairs Committee, um, that the entire anti-war movement was a communist plot. And so I've always had a very um, ambiguous relationship with the government and truth and all that, um, and it's certainly <laughs> reaching a new nadir right now. Uh, <laughs> But I, I, I haven't been that proud that I haven't spent my whole life sucking at the tit of NIH, um, which is support all my research. But whenever I would get to a point where I would think something was very relevant to, you know, the war on drugs and changing drug policy, I would be told by um, the head of the night or whatever that I shouldn't go there. You know, this was not a subject that they could discuss um, unless there was a representative from the White House there or whatever. So um, kind of underground. So when I retired in 2008, I decided, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't have to raise um, uh, grant money anymore. So since then, I've been working to uh, change public policy, do education, 
and establish some sort of uh, longitudinal observational research, which is what I did most of my career, but enrolling people who are entering into uh, medical cannabis programs uh, throughout the country where there is a requirement that um, the material sold in the dispensaries be analyzed and they keep records of the amount and then the patients agree to be interviewed and their caregivers be interviewed so we can look at the subjective and objective complaints and in that way figure out kind of um, are there strain specificities or even, you know, certain cannabinoid mixture specificities that really work for some symptoms and so forth. And I get a lot of resistance from my colleagues say, oh, why bother with that? The drug companies are going to do that. Or the federal government is going to legalize this stuff and then, you know, the big farmer will come in and do it all. And I always say, don't hold your breath, okay? It's not going to happen. And even if they did, they're not going to be interested in the boutique and, and specificity of this, because it's still not an accepted medical specialty. And, uh, it's not, and the real issue is until we've trained a whole nother generation of doctors and psychiatrists and so forth about the positive aspects of psychedelic drugs, in particular cannabis, um, none of them can use it. I remember not so long ago speaking before uh, a group of Northwestern uh, medical students on this subject. And I even had my favorite patient there, Julie, who loves to just, she has um, MS, and she, she loves to just eat her cook, her brownies right in front of the audience while she's speaking. Uh, very effective lobbyist. And, um, but after I finished talking about how so much of what's on the websites of the various government agencies is so contradictory and bullshit, a medical student stood up and said, how dare you accuse our government of, 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 of saying lies? You know, and, and it's like, wow, you know, it's, an, it's another universe. Uh, so I'll get off that. I'll say one of the most important experiences to me was um, about 1967, a group of us were driving cross country from Chicago to New York to participate in the big anti-war march which if any of you have seen the movie Hair, you know all about that. And it was like a 15-hour drive during which several of us had psilocybin tablets with, uh, you know, uh, capsules with us. And so we knew not to eat anything at all uh, during the day. However, we stopped for a break and I ate an orange. So about eight hours later, we get to New York and we take the psilocybin. I thought I was going to wretch that orange for at least an hour. But all of a sudden, I noticed that I'm walking like six inches above the sidewalk in the village. And um, this trip lasted all night and ended up, we couldn't even find the place in Brooklyn where we left our, our stuff. And we were supposed to stay overnight. And we ended up some all-night party where this woman looked into my eyes, which I guess were white as could be, and started reading my past and my present and my future to the point that I really freaked out, and I told my friends, we got to get out of here. This is just too far much. Um, the, mo the most, if, if you read any book, I forget the author, but it's something like uh, Drug, um, uh, Set, and Setting. It's a classic. And, it's, and it explains so much of what you're talking about. The, dr the drug effect is only like a small part of what you experience. And your expectations 
and fears, etc., and especially the setting and who you're with, really can determine whether you have no experience or a good experience or a bad experience. So I think it's very important before you experiment with a new drug, at least, that you do it with somebody who's experienced and can guide you through that. Um, because uh, they will know what the pitfalls are. I, I remember once you, uh, being introduced to um, uh, Special K, ketamine, not knowing what it was, thinking it was Coke, and having a, a K hole on a dance floor in Miami with a bunch of Brazilians I didn't even know. And, and it was the most horrifying thing because you, I don't know if you've ever used something like ketamine or, yeah, it's a totally dissociative thing. And, you know, your body and your mind are just separated by a whole lot. And uh, I got over it and I said, I'm never going to do this drug again. I got back to Chicago and then I told this story to a friend of mine. He said, well, you just didn't do it with the right person. And he arranged for him and I to take it and a third person to be kind of the the uh, driver or whatever the experience in a wonderful setting where we felt safe and he kept saying to me every time it seemed like my body was disappearing and my mind was just little blurbs above my head having little thoughts so you don't have to worry you know this is only going to last two hours then you're going to be fine okay and um, uh, you know one has to really prepare for this um, and then we get to the whole issue of safety and experimentation. You know, most of my research has been, unfortunately, because I'm a doctor and my, my funding came from the AIDS epidemic, is on the, the negative aspects of drugs and how they um, contribute to uh, behaviors that spread diseases. And we're not just talking about AIDS, many diseases. And uh, I think one of the most important discoveries that I made towards the end of that research was that like 90% of all new HIV infections among gay men in the United States were associated with three classes of drug use. Uh, stimulants, uh, erectile dysfunction drugs, and uh, uh, volatile nitrates or poppers. And it's such a close association that you can't, you can't disentangle which comes first, the egg or the chicken. And it's really amazing. Um, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the virus actually evolved to take advantage of the, of the, the particular drug use that was used to um, ex uh, make sex more uh, exciting, and long-lasting, and so forth. And that's how it spread so fast. So, um, and one last thing. People talk about individual experiences you know, and, and we have this put down in medical thing, we call that a case study. And uh, I remember when I was uh, doing research um, on lithium transport and found a woman who had rapid cycling uh, manic depressive illness who was willing to be a su subject where we, we sampled her blood as she cycled through highs and lows and everything. And I presented at a, an APA meeting the results the chemical parameters of her of her membrane transport varied with you know what her mood cycle was you know and then I, I published it and the head of research in, in, in the journal of biological psychiatry and the head of research at the American psychiatric came up to me the next meeting he said 
you know, I read that paper, that, that case study of yours in the journal of biological psychiatry. You know, you set back psychiatric research by 20 years by publishing that paper. So um, uh, it's wonderful to talk about our individual experiences, but unfortunately, there's a conflict, there's a, there's a paradigm conflict between what we're all experiencing and talking about here and how the so-called ideal scientific method is supposed to work. And it's not that it's a bad thing. I think we should be doing both, and we should be looking for how they interrelate with each other and how we can learn so much more that way. Psychedelics have just meant so much to me uh, in my life that it's hard to think of any one story. At this point, I've had enough experience that it has become sort of a, an overarching tapestry. Um, but anytime I'm going to start telling my story with psychedelics, I have to begin with pain. And there are a couple people in this group who know me, so I'm going to try and, and keep this short, but uh, I get headaches. Uh, and, and that was the story that I... I remember telling my wife when they first came back when I was 28 years old. Uh, I told her I get, I get headaches, they're migraine headaches. Um, and I consider myself very lucky that she didn't really believe me. Uh, she didn't really believe me because she spent too much time uh, with me having them and that she remembers me sitting in a shower for two hours rocking back and forth crying and just going, oh my God, oh my God, I hope it stops. She remembers sitting at too many dinners out with friends where I had a beer and she could see me sitting across with tears streaming out of one of my eyes as I tried to pretend like I wasn't in just unbearable pain. And at some point she was the one who finally looked at me and said, these are not headaches. <laughs> what are you doing? And she looked and she looked into more research and she found a different name for them. Uh, they're called cluster headaches. But even that name isn't, isn't incredibly descriptive. Uh, they don't really give the effect of what they do, so there's a third name for them, suicide headaches. Uh, these are a type of primary pain that are known to driving people to kill themselves because they're not actually headaches. They're a nerve pain disorder, and they don't really know what causes them or why, but a nerve in your face and the side of your head starts telling you that you're in pain that cannot be treated by painkillers, or unfortunately by crying or sitting in the shower. And that people with the chronic form of this, they suffer. I'm very lucky in that I don't have the, the chronic form of it, um, and I've been bearing with them for years. But this research and this search for my wife led us to a website called clusterbusters.org, a nonprofit organization that has done surveys and research because people with this particular condition have reported over time that a couple of people noticed that if they take psychedelics, that their headaches, sometimes they stop, sometimes they go away, sometimes they go away for years. And so there I was, 28 years old, the type of person who really had never, never tried drugs. It took me until I was in my master's degree in college to even consider marijuana because I got kind of talked down to uh, by a student who knew more than me about it. And suddenly here I was with this condition that I needed relief from because I couldn't get my life back. I couldn't go out to dinner, I couldn't have beers, I couldn't play soccer, I couldn't do any of the things that I loved. And so, I tried psychedelics. And the short version of that is that I found great relief 
uh, from them. But the truth is there's a lot of you here who know me and who know that story, so I'm not even going to dwell too long on that type of pain. Because the part of the story that I don't tell very often are the other types of pain in my life that I felt lessened. I was so thrilled when I first tried mushrooms to find that my headaches did. They disappeared for a long time. And I was more thrilled to find that when they came back again a year and a half later, that LSD helped me to keep them away, even though I couldn't keep them away permanently. But what I didn't expect to happen from these experiences, as I spent a year treating this disorder, was that other parts of me would begin to grow and that parts of me that I had never experienced before would form. I didn't expect that I would start drinking a lot less. I honestly didn't really know I was a binge drinker, but I was. I loved nothing more than waiting to get to the weekend and didn't really consider the night to have started until I'd had my fourth or fifth drink. And I never talk about that going away because the truth is I was highly functional. I didn't expect that not only would that happen, but that my marriage was going to get better. That I would become more patient and more kind. That I would listen more to my wife. Uh, that I would listen more to everyone around me. And that I would discover a, a deeper common, a, a deeper interest in everyone's stories and the common humanity around me. Probably most of all, I had never considered myself to be a religious or a spiritual person in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I was, I don't know, maybe a rationalist, very logical, very educated, very much believing in school, and it's an odd thing to be sitting where I am now at 31 years old, just three years later, finding for the first time that I have a deep-seated faith in something larger than what is going on and what I can immediately see in this life. And I didn't necessarily find a, a birth into any... I, I don't consider myself to have found a birth into any specific religion, although Buddhist thought has probably influenced me heavily. But more than anything, after a couple of years of experimentation with these substances and looking deeply at myself and internally, I have found that I believe in happiness and that I had that awoken in me I thought I believed in happiness before, but I did not. I believed in happy hour. <laughs> I believed in chasing fleeting pleasures, and I looked for happiness in every place where it was possible to find it for a short time, but where it would inevitably vanish. And instead, through some strange combination of meditation, internal exploration, and this gift of psychedelics that they have been in my life, I believe in finding lasting peace and beautiful joy that exists deep inside each and every one of us. And that it is a matter of going ahead and learning to access it, and that we can achieve it here, now, in this life. That it is available, and I hope to find it, and I hope every one of you do as well. Thank you. So I became I became interested in psychedelics. Uh, initially, I was interested for research uh, purposes. I was thinking, oh my God, you know, can we can we study this? Can we can we try to figure out if this is a good medicine? And also, I was very interested in 
in psychedelic music, in the 60s, in the rock music. I was like, I want to experience an altered state of consciousness. For, for me, it was more like a, 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 an experience in my life. You know, I want to experience what is a hallucination, what is, what is to feel in a different state of consciousness. So I first took LSD one time with, with my friend Matt and another uh, guy that, that we knew from, uh, he was a philosopher, and we had like a, a bonfire and, and a, a group in, you know, we were doing like group therapy when we were in a, in a, in a forest in, in Indiana. We had an experience of sharing, of empathy, or, you know, of introspection. So we were trying to do with therapeutic reasons, but we, we didn't know very much what we were doing. We were we were trying to share our experience, so I was trying to be insightful. You know, why do I like, you know, like, like I used to like older women, you know, I was like, why do I like older women, you know? <laughs> so I wanted to understand that a little bit more, you know, and we were having insightful experience about things. And, and uh, after that, I forgot about it for a while, and I went to New York. Um, I'm from Spain. Uh, no, you know this, I have an accent, but. So after that, I was in Chicago, and then from Chicago, I went to New York. And in New York, I was working with, um, with patients who had cancer. And I was seeing a lot of people dying all the time. And, and, and deeply in my heart, I knew that this comes from childhood experiences, you know. So, so when I was a child, uh, my mother passed away, and, and I was always in my life, that was always in my head, you know, like, what, that, what happens if you die? And I'm a little, I'm a little spiritual, rationalistic, I don't know where I am, you know, but I, no religion really agreed with me. Uh, I didn't know actually what happened after you die. So I was always like, uh, about this experience, I like, what happens after you die? What happens if, what does it mean to not exist? What does it mean to disappear? You know, is there a, do we encounter somebody? So this anxiety is, it was always going on with me uh, for many years. And, um, and and I think that's part of the reason I worked in a, in a cancer hospital. I mean, also I wanted to help people, but from a psychoanalytic point of view, I was really wanting to be there and see unconsciously if I could help other people go through that experience. Maybe I could understand myself and I could kind of like heal my own my own anxiety. So after that, I I saw that in NYU where they were doing research with uh, psilocybin, and I really thought, well, maybe we could do this in patients with cancer because I know they are doing the research and so on. But I kind of like you know like. I finished my fellowship there, and then I came back to Chicago, where I, where I work now. And, and at that time, I, I met with uh, with Matt again because we were co-fellows back in back in the day, and, and and I met with him and reconnected. Well, we were connected even there, but we reconnected more here. Uh, and I, I I had a friend who had the mushrooms. I said, well, let's go again and let's try to do it right, you know. So we we got the Fadiman book. We started this psychedelic meetup, we got the John Lilly, so we read everything and I said, let's do it now according to what they say, you know, let's do it again, but let's do it, let's do it right, you know, let's just not do it randomly and so on. So we did the whole thing, you know, we we had a, an empty stomach, we took coffee, uh, we put our, our music, our Jimi Hendrix uh, and everything, we were in the forest again, in a cabin, in the boats, uh, we were like really, we took a high, high dose. And, and then at that time, I was like, you know, I was like, well, when I took the LSD, I was just feeling empathic and seeing weird things, but not so much. But with this, it was like, wow, you know, that's how I took, a, I found myself, and I wanted to do it just to really experience, uh, have a good psychedelic experience. So I, I guess I was a case report with myself. I wanted to understand something that I would potentially recommend to, to patients and other people in the future. 
So I remember uh, my first experience was to feel very happy. I was feeling very happy. I was feeling, you know, like I was smiling. I remember I was smiling with my eyes closed, you know, with covering my eyes, and I was like, oh my god, I'm so happy. And then I saw a tunnel, and and I felt, do you want to go, yes or no? So I felt I had the option to go in the tunnel or stay, you know. So I said, well, let's go, you know, let's go. But I don't know what's gonna happen, you know. So you get this feeling that if you go, you may not be able to come back, but you're okay with it somehow, you know. So I, I, I took the, the ride and I went in the tunnel and then I felt, and I think that was influenced by, well, first I, what I saw is I could empathize with other people that I thought I had hurt in my life, you know. So at that time I had broken up with a, with a, with a girlfriend that I had in Spain for five years, five years long distance relationship. By the way, I don't recommend long distance so much. I don't think long distance uh, is very good, you know. So after five years we broke up and, and I felt I felt her pain you know like for a while I was trying to justify myself uh, thinking oh my god you know uh, it's her fault or it's not my fault you know but then I, I could feel her pain so by feeling her pain I, I almost like I could enter her her consciousness I mean it was kind of weird you know but I didn't expect that but I felt that I could see I could be here and I could be see myself from her point of view you know so after that I developed that kind of empathy about you know, well, now I feel your pain and I feel the guilty about it, and it's okay to feel guilty about it. Then I entered the mind of another co-worker that I had a problem with for a while, but I was not consciously aware that I had a problem, and I felt like I entered his mind and understand his childhood and everything, you know, so I felt empathy for him too. So after that, I said, okay, let's move on to the next step. So I felt I was again in the tunnel, and I could take the ride or not. So I took the ride, and I said, boom, you know, and I was totally dissociated from my body. I was like, you know, my body was in a different stage or something. So I entered a new compartment or something. It was like in the movie Contact or something like that. Like you are in a compartment and you're like, wow, you know, I'm in a new compartment. And in this compartment, I I felt that I was talking to the to the people who had schizophrenia. I was thinking, oh, you know, you guys, you knew it. You know, you knew it and you didn't tell me, you know. And, you know, I'm a physician, I'm a psychiatrist, I was like, I was thinking, oh my god, I prescribe antipsychotics. I mean, now I don't feel that way, but at that time I was feeling like, why am I prescribing, you know, when these people are, you know, much better than me, maybe, or something like that. You know, that's how I felt, you know, at that time. I, I wouldn't feel, I think schizophrenia is a different thing, but that's how I felt at that time. And then I took another ride to the third compartment, and in the third compartment I was really not expecting this, but I this fear of dying, it really came out, you know. I was like, oh my god, in the third compartment I was like, oh my god, I'm dying. You know, I'm dying and I'm okay with it. But I was thinking, but what about my family? What about my, uh, you know, my brothers? And and then I felt, well, this is just a short time. Like we're gonna all gonna be here at some point, and we all are gonna be okay. You know, it's it's gonna be okay. We're we're happy here. We're at peace. You know, and we are gonna be together. So I don't even have to tell them. So it's almost like I had an experience of conscious. Uh, dying, where I felt I was really dying at that time because I was really far away from, you know, like reality or something. And I felt that it was okay not to share that, that there was a consciousness after that, after I died, you know. So I felt it was okay and I felt that it was, that dying was okay and it was natural and it was what we all expect. And I felt that I was more okay with it. You know, I was more okay with, with dying, and I felt that dying was not that bad after all, you know. So then after I came back from the whole trip, then we we just went for a walk, and we had reflections, and I had, you know, we thought about it. 
but that was, uh, I think, the most intense moment for me psychologically because I've been dealing with this anxiety of dying and not knowing what happens after that and having this almost like um, uh, fear of non-existing and lack of meaning and this kind of existential anxiety. So I've been dealing with it with this for so long and at, at some point I, I felt, you know, it's going to happen, it's natural, it's okay, it might be better or not, you know. And of course, like everyone was saying, I, you know, a little bit a little bit more spiritual, if anything, you know, like there might be something, you know, and let's be open to that, you know, and in the meantime, let's enjoy our trip in this life, you know. Hello, good evening, I'm Andrea. I had my first ayahuasca journey in September, and the first night was really beautiful i was i definitely had reverence i mean i was like crying as i took my glass i knew what was coming and my ego was so scared and when when it came on i had like a five alarm fire in my body it was like retreat mayday get out of here oh my god i can't and then breathe and the first night you know i like i, I remember one moment just being like buddha is that you and it was just you know, really powerful experience in the cosmos and other other universes. And then the next night, I was just like, I can't do this again. But it was like, you came here to drink, so drink. And I was like, I'm gonna drink. And um, and it was really challenging. And it, you know, I just became agitated with like the music. And this is beautiful celestial music and sacred space and. I just, you know, everything started to agitate me, and I couldn't read anymore, and um, as the night progressed, I just, you know, wanted to control my life, and I wanted to have any sense of control, and the tea in the universe was like, little girl, you wanted to cut in line, you know, I love to cut in line, and like, get behind at concerts and sneak my way into stuff, and I always have. And um, the universe was like, not this time, little girl, get back in line. And like, we know why you want to do it, and you're cute, but mm-mm. And, you know, so I was like learning self-love in the process, but then like the insanity, like literally I felt the insanity of like trying to control life. And in the morning, I remember this little, like, dog was there. The, his name was, like, St. Pedro something. It was this beautiful dog from the heavens. And he woke me up, and I was like, <gasps> and I just had this feeling of, like, a wild horse that had just gotten broken. And I got on my hands and knees, and I just, like, thanked the Lord that the experience was over and that I was, like, you know, like, <gasps> Oh my God, thank you. And so then, so meanwhile, in the first night, you know, I had all these like symphonies to my love. His name is Lucas. I loved him so much, you know. I still, maybe I don't anymore. I don't know anything. But anyways, I had all these like symphonies in my head and I, you know, I had all these insights and then just my love for him and letters and just everything just came pouring out. And... um. He, he ended up ending the relationship because he felt he just 
you know, wasn't who he was meant to be in a partnership and stuff. And I'm, and, and I like, I've now lived that insanity of thinking I can control life. And like, I haven't accepted it. And what we, what we accept, we go beyond. And what we don't, we're stuck with. And I'm like in a bad glass, you know? And I like, when am I going to wake up? You know, when is this wild horse going to be broken? And I've almost been like mad at the tea. Like maybe if I hadn't drank the tea, I'd be fine with this dysfunction in my mind. You know, I'd be like, it's heartbreak. You know, you'll get over it. Time, distract yourself. But I know it's something deeper now. And, you know, blast you. Or I'm, and I'm grateful. I really am. I truly am. Um, but it's been hard, and I think that the integration process, even though I've drank the tea um, since then, it's just still going on for me, and uh, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share that, and um, yeah, maybe he'll have a mushroom experience and get into my mind. Anyways, I wouldn't want anybody to get into my mind. It's dysfunctional, but... Thank you for the tea. Thank you for this opportunity. Have a great rest of your evening. Um, so it's a little different. I, uh, th this story um, I owe to uh, the meetup group and Matt, who um, was sharing one time about breath work and um, and how that experience was for him and different than some of the psychedelic or, or other experience, other experiences there. Thank you. So, um, I, uh, um, so I, I signed up and went to a holotropic breathwork. It was actually called Neo-Shamatic Breathwork. And um, so went there and um, really wasn't knowing what to expect. And I don't... I'm, Imagine it's this way with the most breath work what you have. We paired off, and one person's a sitter for the other one while the other one's doing the breath work, and then you would change. So, so I'm a sitter to begin with, and um, and I came with a friend and business partner, um, uh, Viviana, and so we paired off differently. And I'm I'm sitting for someone, and. Um, while they're all doing it, and I'm watching people, and I see across, see Viviana, and she's, you know, just breathing and nothing, you know, just calm. And then I see a few other people, and the person I was sitting with was kind of starting to go through things, and I'm like, you know, I was like, you know, like this is interesting. Like they're just breathing, and you know what's going on, you know. But uh, I was, I was, um, you know, kind of skeptical. Like how is breathing going to really like do anything and um, other than you know maybe a little hyperventilation and you know I, I wasn't sure so then it was my turn um, we switched after a while and and um, so it was my turn to uh, to start doing the breath work and again I'm not really I'm kind of skeptical I'm not really expecting anything I start breathing um, the music which was a big part of this starts going and within minutes like I would say like I was just like like blasted off to somewhere else and I, my body started moving 
like it was first my legs and it was like just moving like I wasn't doing it was just my my legs were moving I know it, it the music had an effect with it and then the and then eventually like the rest of my body like it just couldn't stop and then what it felt like was that there was something trapped inside of me like this energy like something that needed to get out and it was like like I was just moving and moving faster and more like like something like just had to get out and the more I moved the more it was like it was getting out and then all this and then at a certain point so this is going on for for quite a while and you know it started my feet and just kind of moved up and I remember my my head and my neck and like everything's just moving and um and it, that was pretty bizarre and I remember like at one point thinking like in a conscious like being conscious of this and saying god I must look pretty <laughs> Crazy, but I, I just it was just happening, and then and then um and then uh, at a certain point I start like holding myself with my arms like this, like tight. I just like was holding myself. It was like really like, and, and you know I'm still moving, but I'm holding myself, and all of a sudden I start crying, and I get this picture of me as a little kid, about seven. I think I was around seven years old. And I'm in my room, and I'm on my uh, stomach, like kicking, um, crying, kicking my legs, and um, uh, and going to sleep. And I, I I remembered as a child, like that's I don't know what you know I I just I know I felt sad, I felt scared, I felt lonely, um, and the, all this was coming up as I was doing it, just like all of a sudden, like I'm seeing me as this little kid and feeling these feelings again and I'm like bawling I'm like crying like I, I, I didn't you know I wanted to like I, I remember my my hands then going up to my face because I didn't really want anyone to see this um, in this room but I was like you know I was experiencing what I um, and I think um, a afterwards I, I, um, I thought about like when I was a kid I think I would cry myself to sleep and it was kind of like this kicking and hyperventilation kind of like what I was doing with the breath work so there seemed to be some connection there between when I was, you know, how I went to sleep as a kid during this period of time, and um, so anyway, so that goes on, and then and then after a period of time, and I don't know if the music was changing at this time or my body was just like starting to like be tired from all of this. Like I know I was sweating and you know crying, so I was pretty wet at this point, and I um, but I just remember kind of relaxing and. And uh, I, I started like really getting relaxed. And so I started breathing again because I wanted to you know, see what was going on. So I you know, kind of had slowed down my breath. So I was breathing, started breathing again faster and deeper. And then, um, then all of a sudden, like I see, like I look, like you know, my eyes are closed. You know, I have a thing over my, but I look with my eyes closed and I see like a face like looking at me. And um, I don't know who it was. It was, I believe, a man's face. Um, kind of a funny, I remember, like, I wasn't scared or anything, but it was pretty bizarre. I was like, you know, who are you? Like, what are, what are you doing here? And it was like, um, like, I had a big, wide nose, and I just remember thinking, you know, this is kind of interesting, and I don't know where this came from. And then, uh, and, and it was kind of like right in front of me, and I could kind of see through it, but I really couldn't see, like, I was trying to, like, really see, like, do I know this person or what? But then that went away. And then, um, 
I believe after that came a like a um, a tiger, like a Bengal tiger or something. Now I don't think that's that, like much about tigers. I mean, if it was a wolf or some other animals, like I you know have some connection with, but a tiger, I don't know where that came from too. And it's just looking right at me. And what was cool was I could see the eyes and the, the really green eyes. Um, and uh, afterwards, we're, when we're done, this you know, later on we, we go and we're drawing kind of our experience and we have a medallia and a circle. And I remember in the middle, I drew these eyes because that was like so clear to me, these eyes like right in front of me. I'm like, okay, you know, again, not scary or anything. I'm just kind of fascinated by where is this coming from? I'm doing this breath work. Why am I seeing these things? You know, where are these hallucinations coming from? Like, um, it's not something I, I think of. So it's coming from somewhere else. And, and then after that, I saw a couple other um, animals uh, um, that also kind of all looking right at me. And um, so I thought that was, uh, um, so when it was over, um, you know, to me, like, it was just really interesting. Like, I did not expect it. I was skeptical. Um, I, what I do know, like with, I've done a lot of other different things to work on me and to learn and to, to, um, uh, to evolve and, and, uh, um, everything. But, um, I think like the, what I, I, the understanding the breath work and body work, I think that's something I haven't done a lot of. And I think I, that after this experience, um, I really want to explore more of that because especially the all this stuff that I felt inside of me um, that kind of was like weird like okay there's you know there's something going on that I need to deal with it's in my body or cells that I need to work through and um, and the only other thing I'll say is like I was with again I was with my a good friend and, and business partner and afterwards we hugged and like and I just remember crying like feeling like this love and like just so grateful for the friends that I have today and you know for her friendship and all this, because I remember thinking, you know, that little boy, seven years old, I remember that he could have used friends like I have now today. And um, at seven, I couldn't, you know, do the things I do now and be who I am. So at seven, I was experiencing the world in that way. And today, I, you know, it just, it, it did bring afterwards like this great appreciation for, you know, what I've been able to work through and the people in my life today. And, it was really a neat experience, and um, you know I'm grateful, you know, that I had that. And I'm grateful for Matt for you know sh opening up and sharing about his experience that allowed me to then look towards that as well as things like uh, sensory depth tanks and other things I've learned outside of the normal things I've done. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. To help us out, you can leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast service or share an episode with a friend. It really does make a difference. And to follow along with everything else we're working on, check out patreon.com slash nonsense.